0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. This podcast has been alive and kicking since last August, just about eight months. In fact, this is our 30th episode, and in that time, we have not had any repeat guests until now. The guest in question happens to be one of my favorite people in the world, and judging objectively by the numbers and subjectively by listener reaction, she is one of your favorite people too. The episode on which she first appeared back in October before the election is the most downloaded episode in the history of Helen Highwater. And pretty much ever since it dropped, we have been hearing from countless people on social media and elsewhere that, A, even though they love her as a host, which is her day job, they love hearing from her as a guest. B, they particularly love hearing her swear up a storm. Like, who knew this brilliant, classy lady had a mouth on her as profane as that of any sailor? And almost, as profane as mine, and C, they wanted us to invite her back. And if there's anything we believe in here at the Hell Highwater High Water Home Office, it's that our audience is smart and discerning as hell, and so keeping the customer satisfied is one of our prime objectives and directives, all of which means that our motto around here up to a point is ask and you shall receive. And since you asked for her, well, more like demanded her, here she is, the one and only Nicole Wallace.
1: The state of our union is worse than we thought. I think we thought Trump was the problem, but underneath that guy was a country that is really seething.
0: Since Nicole has been on the podcast before, I will boil down the biographical mumbo jumbo to a few bullet points. Former communications savant in the George W. Bush White House and on the McCain 2008 campaign, former co host of The View, former guest host of With All Due Respect, with yours truly, for people who literally like deep cuts. And now the host for two hours every afternoon of Deadline White House on MSNBC. I will also skip a lot of rigmarole about the themes of this week's episode. Suffice to say, a lot has happened since the last time Nicole was here. Joe Biden's election, the birth of the big lie, an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, a second impeachment of Donald Trump, the Biden inauguration followed by a busy first 11 weeks of the new administration, plus the COVID vaccination boom, the start of the Derek Chauvin murder trial, another deadly attack on the Capitol last week. And yeah, you get the picture. It's a lot because as some of you may have heard, Nicole and I are engaged in a constant running conversation about the news of the world, part of which we conduct on television and part of which takes place offline in text and email and on the phone. I already knew that she had a lot to say about all of this, and I was eager to dig into it. And I won't say surprisingly because, you know, it's not the least fucking bit surprising at all. We talked and talked and talked and talked. We talked so long, in fact, that we have enough material for two whole episodes of this podcast. And so, as we have done on a couple of special occasions in the past, we have turned this episode of Hell and High Water into a two-parter. So, settle in. Check out this first part of the podcast in which Nicole and I talk about Joe Biden and how he's doing, about COVID, about Andrew Cuomo. And then, when you finish, download part two in which we talk about the abject shit show that is the post-Trump Republican Party the fallout from the insurrection, the Chauvin trial, and much more. And while some of that might sound kind of dark, subject matter-wise, I promise there will also be some laughs in this podcast and more than a few rays of light, because when you have Nicole Wallace in the house, you know you are going to have some fun and feel some joy as you grapple with facing down the challenges of an era full of hell and high water.
2: So today... I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work, not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed and it's going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done, since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. In fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. It will create millions of jobs, good-paying jobs. will grow the economy, make us more competitive around the world, promote our national security interest, and put us in a position to win the global competition with China in the upcoming years. It's big, yes. It's bold, yes. And we can get it done. So there's
0: Joe Biden uh, rolling out his infrastructure plan this week. And we are here with Nicole Wallace on Hell and High Water. And I'm going to say these words that are very controversial, it turns out. Not, like the audience of Nicole's show. Some people love this and some people hate this. But uh, the ones who hate it, I, my attitude is fuck you. Here's the thing they, they love. It. Hi, Nicole. Hi. It's hilarious. Oh, what do they hate?
1: They hate when oh you my. say hi?
0: Yeah. I mean, many people love it. Many people love it. And many people are like, it's so annoying that you say hi, Nicole, every time you come on.
1: I feel like it's like this like um, reveal that like we talk off the show. Like, I know. I think it's like, oh, let's now like have a conversation on TV that we, you know, had yesterday about what's really happening in the campaign. I don't know. I, I, and I didn't realize it was so polarizing.
0: It's simple for me. It's like, people are like, are you trying to kiss up to Nicole? I'm like, kiss guys, she's one, of, she, she's, she's one of my best friends. My <laughs> position on the show is secure. I'm not flirting with her. I'm not trying to get on the show. So I'm weird. trying to say hi to my friend who I haven't seen in a year because of COVID. I say hi because it's like, that's what I do when I see my friends. I greet them. I say hello. Yeah,
1: hi. Yeah. Hi, hi like, Nicole. I know, I know we're going to talk about all this shit, but let yeah. me first say hello.
0: So you're the first person who's ever been back. Hell and I Water's been happening for eight months. You're the first return guest. And you're here because I love you, as you know, but also because you're the highest rated guest in the history of the show. Um, And also the most uh, among a group of incredibly profane potty mouths. You've been the most potty mouth. And to the point where the other day I was saying, oh, Nicole F. Wallace is coming on the show. And people like, it's not the staff is like, it's not Nicole F. Wallace. It's Nicole D. Wallace. I'm like, hey, when she's on our show, it's Nicole F. Wallace. What are you talking about? She's the queen of the F-bomb on this show
1: it's just the times call for it. I said to a group of friends yesterday that they were watching and I said, I need a show where I can say fuck on TV. So this will have to fill that space for me for now.
0: Absolutely. Come on premium cable. <laughs> I'll give you all the time in the world. Can
1: you can um, you do that on cable? Yeah, I guess so.
0: Oh my God. Yes. On Showtime. I say fuck constantly. Yeah, Of
1: course you guys do all the time. That's right.
0: So it's great to have you. And this last week was a brutal week um, for news. But I want to just focus on Biden for a little bit at the top of this thing. Sure. We're going to have a nice long conversation about Joe Biden because the last time you were on, it was before the election. And we were both evaluating, you in particular, were evaluating the strength of Biden's campaign. Yeah. And, you know, then he won. Again, we'll get more of that too. But here's the thing. You know, I think a lot of people who watched Biden's campaign thought it was kind of haphazard. And then in the general election, it got very disciplined and people were like, wow, these guys really are, have their shit together. And now you have Joe Biden coming out, and I'm going back to the sound now, rolling out this infrastructure plan. And you listen to that sound. It's super bold yeah. and super ambitious. It's a giant swing, right? And everybody who thought, well, we're getting Joe Biden, Mr. He's a moderate. Yeah. He's bipartisan. He's into compromise. He's a, He even called himself during the campaign a transitional president. Right. Right. And now it's like, not I'm a transitional president. He's, he's basically saying, I'm going to be a transformational president. Right. I want you to talk about that, because I think that's a good place to start with what we've seen in just the, you know, 70 odd days that he's been in office.
1: Yeah, look, I think the frame on him is wrong, Like he didn't stumble into the presidency. I think the politician that prevails is often the one with the highest threshold for indignity and pain. And I think he had sort of the stomach because losing the first, what, three, four primaries was never going to be the worst thing that happened to Joe Biden, right? He'd had so much personal tragedy that political humiliation was just something he was going to be able to endure. And I think we've talked about this on TV or, or in any broadcast, but because he could endure those losses, he was able to stay in the game until he was presented with an opportunity to win. And I think that what you display when you can endure defeat and hardship and humiliation is sort of the metal that you need to govern. And this is where I think Obama was always aware of what was being said about him on Fox. I don't think Biden gives a shit. I really think Biden is gonna be one of these like actual Teflon politicians. I think that got applied to Bill Clinton in the context of poll numbers. That may or may not be the case. Biden's poll numbers do seem incredibly steady. But I think people have totally underestimated him as a politician, and, and Bush had this too, but it, was, it came from a different place. He just was really, really at peace and still is with letting history be his judge. So we had to force him to watch some of the negative coverage. I think Biden is, is aware of it, but focused on sort of goals. And he's wanted to be president for decades. Right, And so I think he is sort of immune to all the noise that kind of happens on our frequency. And I think it's been underestimated and underreported as an asset for governing.
0: Right. I agree with that. But this is actually goes beyond that, too. Right. Because people noted during the campaign that he did something really unusual, which was in the nomination fight, he campaigned from a more moderate position and then moved to the left in the general election. Right. After the campaign was over, he got a lot of criticism. People were like, you're not progressive enough for the Democratic Party. He was like, no, the party's more moderate than you think. He campaigned as a moderate. He beat Bernie Sanders and then moved on policy in a more progressive direction, and now is governing in this much more progressive way than anybody ever expected, given his history, his record, Mm -hmm. how he'd won the nomination. And I think it's really striking because he is immune to the criticism. I totally agree with that. But it's also that he's really embraced this idea of, I can be transformative, and I can change the country Mm -hmm. in a way that, and I think this is very particular, in a way that my friend Barack Obama did not.
2: Mm.
0: I am going to be a better president. I am going to be a more transformational president. I know he says this around the White House with some frequency right now. Mm. Not to dis-Obama, but just, you know, Obama famously used to say that Reagan had changed the country in a way that Clinton and Nixon and Carter had not. Mm -hmm. And I think Biden looks at Obama and thinks he was an incredibly important historic first, but Biden has a chance right now because of the crises we're facing Mm -hmm. to change the country more and in a more lasting way than Obama did. And he thinks himself as more like a liberal Reagan.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, look, I mean, the, the country's on its knees. I think people thought, you know, you're going from a Republican who was outrageous and corrupt to, as you're saying, like a middle of the road Democrat. I think that what we may have all missed in four years of conversations about Trump's latest outrage was that the country really had come apart at the seams. I mean, you've now got two sets of facts for the two halves of the polarized divide. There is no information stream that's accepted by all Americans, none. So what Biden's managed to piece together so far in his first, you know, whatever, three months, two and a half months, is close to 75% approval rating on his COVID response, 76% approval rating on his massive COVID relief package, and his 60% job approval rating. I mean, that gives you the permission structure to do what you're explaining. Sure. To believe that you can be transformational. Now, I will say this: have you been in a White House
2: right.
1: in crisis, where crisis came to us, came to the country after 9 It's fleeting. So, you know, he may not have four years. But he definitely has this time now. And, and I think he's using it exactly to articulate, to be transformational.
0: Oh, he won't have four years. We know that. And he's surrounded by these incredibly professional people who've been through a lot, led by Ron Klain. And their attitude is like, they know. They've taken all the lessons. They've been in these Democratic administrations. They've been in the Clinton administration. They've been in the Obama administration. They're like, the window is small. And it's going to close at some point sooner than we think. Yeah. And so we got to move fast with aggression and alacrity and focus yeah. and relentlessness to do these big things. But here's what I what I think, I just want to go back to transformational. In like the spring of last year, not that long after COVID started, I got a call as I occasionally would, and people don't all kill me for this, but occasionally I got a phone call from Steve Bannon, who was talking about how much he was like blown away by how good Biden's campaign was and how he thought Trump was fucking up COVID. And one of the things he said on that call was that he could imagine Biden being like FDR and that it would be one of the most surprising things that people would be like. People didn't get how because of Biden's genial manner, because the fact that he was not as easy to demonize as Obama or Clinton, that he would have this if he could get COVID right when he got on the backside of it, he could be. I mean, he kept comparing him to FDR. Mm. I kind of like cocked an eyebrow at that and was like, I don't know. But it looks more and more like at least that's the plan. What Biden's trying to do is be FDR, the president that shaped his consciousness more than any other.
1: I think that's right. And I think that there were a lot of political operatives on the right who saw some of the press coverage around the gaffes as eerily reminiscent of all the press coverage about George W. Bush's gaffes. Who, you know, was elected by the American people twice, which is not to say that gaffes improve your standing, but they certainly don't knock you out. And I think there were Republicans who understand the electorate who thought he absolutely was electable. I mean, Donald Trump can like smear anything and anyone. Like he can smear an inanimate object. And he never came up with a smear for Joe Biden ever, ever. I mean, other than getting impeached for trying to take him out using a foreign country, he never came up with an attack on him that landed. But I think you're speaking about sort of audacity, right? Yes. Like the audacity of Joe Biden's governing philosophy and 100-day agenda. And it's kind of happening. It, it doesn't even leave the news most days, but it, it is what's happening. And I think we'll look back and, and sort of recognize that this was very much the plan. This was very much what Ron Klain and Joe Biden and all of those experienced hands sort of plotted out in their very abbreviated transition. And the Obama piece is more opaque to me, but it certainly looks like exactly what's unfolding.
0: I, I'm testing my memory here. When you came into the Bush administration, you weren't there right at the beginning, right? You weren't there for transition. It right?
1: started February 1st. So I think I started like 10 days after the inauguration. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's
0: very early. So this question, this question works for you then. You know, no one understands just the, the there's nothing like, I mean, you 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 inherit the federal government when you become president of the United States. Yeah. It's, it's like the biggest company in America, Right. And even if you have a full transition, it's like a couple months yeah. to take over the levers of the biggest, most powerful enterprise in the world, right? right. There is no amount of transition that could get you ready to operate that giant entity. And these guys, as you just pointed out, had a very abbreviated transition and one in the middle of which there was a fucking insurrection, right? Right.
1: And, and, so, and the peak of the pandemic.
0: Right. Doing it in the midst of a pandemic. So I'd like you just to reflect a little bit about what you remember about the challenges of getting started at the outset of the Bush administration and kind of from that perspective, talk about what you've seen from this team that has impressed you as you've seen them get it together in the way they
2: have.
1: Well, I mean, you just named all the reasons why it's it's an inadequate parallel. I mean, I didn't have to do it in the time of Twitter. I didn't have to do it in a time where there were literally bodies to be buried, of law enforcement officers who died at the hands of, of the last guy's supporters. I mean, they took over and, and it wasn't just a raging pandemic. It was the peak of this country's pandemic deaths, 5,000 people a day, I think, were dying the week of the inauguration. And there was all sorts of sketchy reporting about what was happening at the national security agencies. I mean, right. Remember Donald Trump had yes. put all those yeah. weird people at the Pentagon? So it was, it was an extraordinary fraught moment. It was perhaps the most fraught period of the Trump presidency. He was peddling a lie that led to this attack on the Capitol. I mean, he never conceded, he never acknowledged reality. So they had to go in and, and when you go in, what isn't understood is that sure, everybody moves out of the white house, the family packs up, you know, their underwear and clothes, but no one that works at the agencies leaves. I mean, the cabinet goes in and takes over the same work staff, maybe what, five, 10 people go in. So these were these like hollowed out agencies. I mean, way back before there was an insurrection, a deadly pandemic, there was some jackass that wore tactical pants and had like a phone booth. I mean, what Trump did to the government was, I mean, we've forgotten it. It was like, it was like a million dog years ago. But what Trump did to the federal government was a scandal, a a slow moving scandal that barely led our newscast because there was so much scandal. But I cannot.
0: Was it, was it fucked up?
1: Yes, it was so fucked up. But you remember that guy, I can't remember his name. He was like six HHS secretaries ago or something. But, you know, everyone he put in there was a bozo. And and almost everybody ended up under investigation for ethics or scandal or something. I think by the end, Elaine Chao was under investigation. I mean, it was a mess. And so I cannot fathom what they encountered. And I, I I would guess that they're still unpacking the damage that Trump did to the federal government.
0: Well, yes, all of that. And a lot of it was ineptitude and the chaos was spawned by incompetence. And then other parts of it were spawned by, you know, the big grift. Totally. And I, I keep going back to that Michael Lewis book about how at the lower level, the medium level, bureaucratic appointee level, that the whole place was stocked by people who are self-dealing, who are making little tiny changes at the National Weather Service, that would create a business opportunity for some startup in Fargo, North Dakota, that they had a 34% stake in. And it was all these little, just nickel and dime corruption bullshit that was going on throughout the government that was designed, it was all basically premised on the fundamental principle of self-enrichment. How do we suck dollars out of the public trough and put it into our private pockets?
1: Well, the indifference to the rule of law that was the tone set at the top with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, you know, who knows what they were doing. I mean, Jared Kushner never should have had national security access, he did. We'll never know what he did with it, right? like what was for sale? What was given to American adversaries like Russia and Saudi Arabia? The CIA didn't think he should have access to any of the secrets. Donald Trump overruled him and gave access to Kushner and Ivanka. So that was the tone set on rule of law ethics and national security secrets. What trickled down was in two categories. I mean, the days before Biden took over, there was a massive and unprecedented hack from Russia against our national security agency. (laughs) Which people
0: totally forget now.
1: Which people, people are like, oh, you know, we don't have time for that. Do it in the D block. I mean, it's like, They inherited a country under attack from Russia in the cyberspace, literally dying at record levels. And again, 5,000 people a day were dying when they took over. And there were dead Capitol Hill police officers at the hands of Trump supporters. They inherited such a shitstorm and such a tragic moment for the country that I think looking at sort of the boldness of their agenda, it sort of skips all of the, the literal, you know, healing and bandaging over all the mess and open, bloody wounds that Trump left.
0: So there's all of that. And I, I want to come back to one thing about this team and this this administration, right? Because obviously you're a thousand percent right, right? Everyone's like, can you get the COVID package through? I'm like, when you've got an approval rate north of 60% and the thing you're trying to pass is north of 70%, you're going to pass that fucking thing. That's right. it. Right. That's like, that's in the end, that's like, people say, boy well, pays too much to the poll numbers. I'm like, the poll numbers, when they reflect that kind of public support in this polarized country, you have enormous political capital. And I would say, you know, the same thing, you know, is going to be true for this infrastructure bill, which doesn't mean that it's it's guaranteed passage, but right. he's just playing such a strong hand. But here's the question that I want to ask, which is as a communications professional, just evaluate that because the communications challenge is greater than it's ever been. The combination of what you were talking about before, the hermetically sealed different information spaces that people live in, right? The misinformation, the disinformation, social media you know, linear television's dead, over the top, on demand. No, there's no common church anymore. Right. Yeah. So, so you having been a communications professional an eon ago in real time, right? You know, it's, it's only 20 years ago, Nicole, but it, the truth is it's a, it's a, it's like it's forever ago. Forever. Right, it's, an ep- it's five epochs ago. Totally. Talk about what you've seen from this team in terms of managing the communications challenges that they've been presented.
1: Okay. So this doesn't serve you or me in our current roles, but I would posit that the 76% approval rating for the COVID package, 60% job approval rating suggests that they're doing the right thing by just not engaging. They never engaged on a second impeachment. They don't engage on sort of news of the day. They don't play 20 Twitter news cycles a day. They do not play that game. Right. Now, every action has a reaction, right? So it's working for them. Bush was like that in some ways, you know, he he went beyond the Beltway and constantly did local media, you know, constantly went to sports. Media. I mean, I I saw Biden's throwing his support behind the um, All-Star Game being moved out of Atlanta on ESPN. I thought, oh, my God, he's on ESPN. I mean, he's really, really making an end around the Beltway media it was probably a longer conversation. You know, I, I said yesterday to Michael Steele, I'm not sure the country's governable. I'm not sure the Washington media works as media. I mean, you, you look at all the criticism and this isn't personal, but just in terms of what they're covering about the White House, the endless stories about the dogs. They did a press conference and no one asked them about COVID. I mean, and it's not their fault, but I think if you live on Twitter, you're missing the country because Twitter's, you know, 145 people talking to each other and attacking each other and blocking each other. Biden has made the opposite bet. He is not playing that game. And again, all this is fleeting. It may stop working, but for now, it, it is the right bet. The other thing is the stuff he's doing is stuff that we don't need to explain to people. Shots in the arms, money for safe schools, right? They don't need us to explain bridges and roads in your community suck. Everyone in a car or on a subway or on a train knows that bridges and and public transportation suck, so they don't need us. They will come to a place where they need to do some storytelling with the press and we'll see if this bet works for them. But I think their bet is ballsy. It is hard to ignore. Your Twitter feed is hard to ignore the noise, but they are incredibly committed to doing it. But they might be the most disciplined White House in sort of that first two years of the Bush presidency, which, again, did not associate with approval ratings like what they have. Right. It's very impressive from a communication standpoint.
0: Well, and there's two other things I'd say, one of which is just a fact, which is they are easily, this is true in the campaign and it's true now easily the, the most leak-free operation I've ever seen that I've ever covered. They are very disciplined, to your point a second ago. And I think that can be very frustrating to reporters in some ways. But it, it has, so far, they've managed to really be buttoned up, number one. And number two, the countervailing thing there, and this is a thing that I'm not, well, we'll see what you have to say about it. But a thing that I think some maybe out there in the world won't necessarily agree with, but I will say it. They know that they have a sympathetic press corps, after Trump, they had a sympathetic press corps during the campaign who saw Trump by and large. And I'm talking not just about opinion people and people yeah. who spout and pontificate like me, but I'm talking about like the mainstream press thought that Trump was not fit for office and they weren't out there and acting like cheering section for the Biden campaign, but they were sympathetic to the framing of. Of issues and the arguments the Biden people were making. And I think by and large that the press is sympathetic to them now because the press, I think, right, in my opinion, rightly, saw Trump as an utter fuck up and thought that he was unsuited for office and thought he was going to destroy the fucking country. And I think, you know, reporters are like, okay, you know, they have a bias towards competence. They look at this administration and say, at a minimum, these guys seem to be trying to govern the country in the way that we think a competent administration should. And I think they're aware of that. They get that the press is broadly sympathetic. To their framing of these issues. I'm not saying that they're in the tank. I'm saying they're broadly sympathetic. And I think they take advantage of that in a very shrewd way.
1: I don't think you ever think the press feels your pain, ever. I mean, they might. I don't you'd know better than me, but I don't think you ever think that you're getting benefit of the doubt from the press. And I say that as someone who's in the communications operation you know, all through the ups, extreme ups and downs of the Bush years. But I don't think you ever feel like the press appreciates what you're trying to do and what you've inherited. They might, but I don't think you ever as a presser, I don't think Jen Zaghi walks out of the briefing room and says, they have no idea how much should I have on my plate, you know, I, I just, and I think to your, to your point, I, to be totally blunt, I think a lot of people in our business see both sides of this, right? That we were never more central than when literally the fate of the democracy was on the line. So I think it might be a little more complicated for journalists.
0: No doubt that's right, Nicole. And um, we are going to talk a little later about whether the fate of democracy is in fact still on the line and uh, therefore the role of journalists is still as important as ever. But I do want to chat a little bit more about Joe Biden's relationship with the press and where we have seen the one place where there has been some scratchiness, and that is on the one substantive area where the administration has run into some trouble. And that is, of course, the ongoing crisis. And I will say crisis at the border, not to say whose fault it is, but it's a crisis. Anyway, we saw Joe Biden have some questions raised about that in his first press conference, and I'm gonna play some of that and we'll talk about it. But first, we're gonna take a quick break here, and then we're gonna come back for the second part of the first part of our conversation with Nicole Wallace here on Hell and High Water.
2: Did you move too quickly to roll back some of the executive orders of your predecessor? First of all, all the policies that were underway were not helping at all. did not slow up the amount of immigration and as many people coming. And rolling back the policies of separating children from their, from, from their mothers, I make no apology for that. Rolling back the policies of uh, remaining in Mexico, sitting on the edge of the Rio Grande in a muddy circumstance with not enough to eat. And money, I make no apologies for that. I make no apologies for ending programs that did not exist before Trump became president that have an incredibly negative impact on the law, international law, as well as on human dignity. And so I make no apologies for that. And we're back on Hell and High Water with
0: my friend Nicole Wallace, and that was a defiant Joe Biden at his first press conference, responding to our colleague Kristen Welker. One of many journalists in that room who decided to raise the topic of immigration and the crisis at the border with this flood of migrants who are coming across and that has had the administration having its one sort of rocky patch amid all the successes it's had so far. This is something that was an unexpected thing. The administration has been criticized, not just by Republicans, but by activists uh, and certainly has has been questioned, Mm -hmm. as we saw there thoroughly by the press. So I'm curious Nicole as you saw that you know watching that press conference I think we agree we probably talked about it on television that Biden was uh handled that press conference well he made news on the thing he wanted to make news on he didn't make news that he didn't want to make news on the things he was criticized for like having a briefing book in front of him were just absolutely fucking ridiculous no american could possibly be bothered, a normal American could possibly be bothered by the notion that Joe Biden has a, a briefing book or the names of reporters on it, the idea that the right went crazy. and was like, he's senile. He needs a book. It's like, you know, if I was doing that, I'd need a book too. I'd probably bring a fucking laptop up there. Anyway, on the substance right here, right? These issues at the border, I'm curious about both the substance of the critique that he's received and also your assessment of how he handled those questions in the room. And we'll talk to you in a second about George W. Bush, your former boss, but just go with that for now.
1: Well, let me back into it. So George W. Bush is out with a new book about immigrants. I think our whole frame on this is, some of this is on us. This is not a political crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. And I think the whole Joe Biden, how did you screw this up frame is bullshit. And I think the fact that George W. Bush last week released a book on immigrants suggests that maybe it's still on his mind that when he had an opportunity to solve immigration with Democrats, because his own party had already been taken hostage by xenophobes and racists, maybe he should have. He had Ted Kennedy and John McCain, and it was hard in the Democratic Party too. Then President Obama tried to deal with immigration in a comprehensive way. The failures of the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and then just the inhumane four years of Trump. If you wanna cover it in a political way, it's their fault. Biden's been there for a minute. And I think, I think everyone should go and look at what's happening. I've been to the border with the late, great Tony Snow a few times. I was a part of when the right tried to be supportive of what Bush was trying to do. And again, that lasted for a hot minute. But I remember Dick Cheney going on Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and Tony Snow spending all this time on right media. The political frame is a loser and will never spare human suffering when we cover it that way. This is a humanitarian crisis as a parent, as a human being, if you can imagine putting your child on a bus and knowing you may never see them again, then you can imagine what the Biden administration is dealing with. If you can't get into that, then you'll never understand it. And Bush understood it that way. I think Obama understood it that way. The late John McCain understood it that way. Kennedy understood it that way. I don't know if the people covering it understand that that's what it is, but it's a humanitarian crisis. It should be covered that way. These people are fleeing heinous situations in their countries that Donald Trump made worse. And I think they need to be given a minute to try to figure out how to deal with the humanitarian crisis. And then this country has not shown that it has the capacity to cover this for what it is, which is a humanitarian crisis. And Donald Trump wanted to use the Pentagon to build jails at the border and more cages for children. We talked at the beginning about unpacking all the crap that they inherited. Some of the last investigative reporting about child separation showed that Rod Rosenstein was in favor of taking nursing children away from their mother's breasts. That's how corrupt and heinous and cruel the last administration was at the highest levels. That is what they are trying to undo. And I I just, I I think we have to give them a minute to get their arms around the humanitarian suffering.
0: I was thinking about your old boss in this context. And I can't remember the last time we talked on this program, whether I told this story or not. But, you know, the first time I ever met George W. Bush was uh, covering the governor's race in 94 in Texas. And I was down in like McAllen, Texas or somewhere on the border. First time I ever met him. It's so a Saturday, a couple of weeks before the election, and there was a park filled with Hispanic kids playing soccer on a Saturday morning. Half of them had to be undocumented and half of them may be illegal. And it was like, there's no good reason for a Republican to be in this very, very heavily Democratic district. And Bush is out there on a sat two weeks before the election with Ann Richards. He's out there on a Saturday morning, kicking a soccer ball around and talking Spanish with them. And we hopped into the bus and we talked about immigration for about an hour on the bus and education. And I remember thinking... Honestly, at that moment, when my home state, our home state, California, was had Pete Wilson running this incredibly flagrantly xenophobic,
1: 187, yeah,
0: anti-immigrant policy, and the party was just at that moment getting split between restrictionists mm-hmm. and xenophobes on one side, mm-hmm. and and been people who wanted to find a pathway to citizenship for undocumented uh, migrants. You know, Bush was like the champion of the right. View in my, in my view. And I remember being incredibly Mm -hmm. impressed with him Mm -hmm. Was why my, my relationship wildly less than your relationship, but it was when I elected, I walked out of that interview with George Bush. So my relationship with him started and I thought this guy's impressive. He was impressive in that moment. Just the fact that he was there doing what he was doing and now he's still out there, you know, advocating a position that almost no one in the Republican party. He's the former president of the United States, a former two-term president from the Republican party only 20 years ago. Yeah only 20 years ago. And he is a pariah Uh on this issue, on the issue of immigration. It's stunning. It's stunning. There's almost no issue that illustrates how the Republican Party has changed in 20 years more than this one.
1: I totally agree with you. I mean, the other was when he called and and recognized Joe Biden as the president, nobody followed him. I mean, former president, we cover Obama we cover you know, Bush because sometimes they give people a path to follow. The Republican Party didn't follow him when he recognized the existence of Joe Biden as a legitimate president. And immigration just preceded that. He was at a step with his own party as president. The speech that I worked on that was rewritten the most times was the Address to the Nation on Immigration Reform. It was in 05, I think. States of the Union usually have like 20, 30 drafts. The, the Address to the Nation on Immigration, I think, got up to 47. I was on a trip to California with him working on it, and it was because there were people inside the White House who just refused to accept what Bush believed. Bush didn't believe people would go back to their countries and get online. He understood that there were, and I don't know what the number is now, but at the time 17 million people here illegally who were part of their communities, part of their churches, part of their local economies, and they were not going to go back. There's also, if you talk to former, and I don't know about the current team, but intelligence officials, there's no example of terrorists coming through the southern border. It's just never happened. So there's not a national security threat. But there is, and I think the pandemic revealed this. There is a need, you know, to get everybody into society. And the fact that, you know, two presidents, Bush and Obama, and then you had Trump, failed to do anything comprehensive. I think argues for giving this president a minute to try to figure it out.
0: It is one of those things. People, because he's moving so fast, because he's moving with such confidence on so many fronts, it's easy to forget that this administration really is just getting started, and we're only 11 weeks in. We're not even past the 100-day mark, and so. They got to deal with this thing at the border. But you're right. It's going to take them a little while. This is an ongoing problem. It's bedeviled a lot of administrations. Um, You know, I think it's funny just to to be coming out of that discussion and say, well, you know, we've just talked about Joe Biden. That's the optimistic part of our program. And it is sort of the optimistic part of our program. This is a podcast called Hell and High Water. And um, we promise apocalyptic discussions about end times matters. (laughs) uh, And we're going to get into some of those after we come back from taking this break where we're going to sell some soap flakes. Please bear with us, listen to some ads, and then we will talk on the other side about COVID and where we are in the pandemic and how Nicole does something kind of extraordinary on her show every day with respect to the extraordinary and devastating impact this pandemic has had in all of our lives. We're going to talk about that with her when we come back on Hell and I Water.
1: One month after his initial diagnosis, Dr. Carlos Arajo Preza, a critical care pulmonologist, slipped into a coma. So nurses, his former co-workers, set up a video call. On the other end was Paige, Carlos's beloved partner. She was a nurse practitioner too, but not in that moment. In that moment, on that call, she was just a person about to say goodbye to the love of her life, and she knew it. Paige held one of his old scrub caps because it smelled like him, she said. And for a few hours, she just talked and talked while the 51-year-old's chest rose and fell only thanks to a ventilator. The next day, Dr. Rajo Preza, a father of two, died of COVID-19. He did so in a Houston area hospital where months prior, he'd slept nights on end, only coming home for change of clothes, just to be close to his patients. Days after he passed, another moment of anguish for Paige. She got an email from the hospital, inviting her to register for a COVID vaccine, soon to be available to medical workers there. So as the light at the end of this long, dreadful tunnel gets a little brighter, don't forget about the people who didn't make it, or the people behind the people that didn't make it and the
0: ones they leave behind we are back on hell and high water um that's our guest today nicole wallace doing something that nicole you do every day and have been doing every day for a year now i see you like <laughs> it's emotional right that was you that was december sixteenth, 2020 you guys have just hit a year of doing lives well lived is what that series is called it's the end of your program every day and I, I want you to talk about it as a way to get into the discussion of COVID, but. This feature of your show has been, I think, you know, has become a signature feature of the show. It's a beautiful, often moving, I think incredibly important part of the show now, and, and it's had an incredibly strong reaction. People love your show for a lot of reasons, but this thing, it, it's beautiful that you do it and you do it beautifully. How did you decide to go down this path that you think you would be doing it throughout the whole of the pandemic? We asked my friends on your team to give us some good examples of ones that were particularly strong. And by strong, I mean, you know, poignant, moving. This was one. They were an amazingly large number to choose from, but we had to settle on one. So that's the one we played. But talk a little bit about Lives Will Live and how it came about and what you sense the impact of it has been.
1: So on 9-11, I worked in the White House and I met all the family members of the people who perished on flight 93. And I remember all of them sort of grabbing us physically and saying that it was so important that we remembered their loved ones. And we've all covered year after year after year of the 9-11 memorials where they still read the names of everybody who was in the towers. And there's still service in Shanksville. And in the beginning, the first two I covered were people, one was someone that my father knew and one was someone that a friend of mine at the Justice Department knew, a judge who had died in New York. So the first two were, Oh my God, there's nothing happening. These people can't have funerals. I'll just do them. But I, I knew that there was something for the families who'd lost loved ones in a national crisis that was important. And I thought, well, soon enough, somebody else will take this over. and So we'll just do this in the interim. And we started doing it before it was clear that anything could have been done to save any of them. So we we were just doing it because there was this natural crisis, this pandemic. But then it became clear that, you know, like that story, that people didn't have to die. The People were dying because Donald Trump refused to acknowledge the crisis, that he was obsessed with his numbers, like numbers on a scale or something. We know he lies about those too. And so, you know, we started doing it because it felt like from the other side, they didn't want to acknowledge the reality of the tragedy. And we're still doing it because you move around the country, like there's still people that don't wear masks. There's still people that don't think it's real the 30 percent of republican men who say they're not going to get vaccinated well you know i hope they do for their own safety but i hope they do for a pediatric cancer person in their community or in their grocery store who may get breathed on by someone who is COVID positive i mean still and, and again as i said at the beginning i mean country is worse off than we thought when you've got 30 percent of white republican male trump supporters who say they won't get vaccinated what's that about
0: yeah i mean in December, in that clip that we played, you know, you said something about the light at the end of the tunnel. At the end of this long, dreadful tunnel, gets a little brighter. The light, um, you know, that was December, and and obviously the light's brighter now. Yeah. You know, and we feel closer to the end of the tunnel, and people are getting vaccinated at extraordinary rates. I mean, I think when the histories of this are written, the the history of what biomedical engineering did, yeah, the development of this vaccine will be written as a as a gargantuan success story. It will be like putting man on the moon. Totally. People will talk about this as a transformational moment in the long arc of genetic engineering and, and vaccine development and all that stuff. It's amazing. It's incredible what's happening. Totally. But it's still like, you know, when you re- talk about the numbers you're just talking about, there's still people dying on an extraordinary scale, and people are now talking about a sixth wave, and and there's still all these vaccine deniers out there, and there's people who don't want to get the shots, and I, you know I I don't want in any way diminish the the fact that I think things, obviously things are getting better, and we're obviously this thing is we're we're getting our handle on it, and yet man, there's just evidence every day that is just still stunningly stunningly upsetting and and tragic around us all the time, and I I just I mean I would love for you to talk about it a little bit. In the context of someone who just has been covering it every year and having to do a lives well lived every day and still you're in tears about it hearing yourself talk about a thing that happened five months ago and you do these every day and it's an incredible as i said beautiful and honorable thing to do but it's got to take a toll on your soul
1: well i mean look we do it because it's what's happening and if we don't you know hold the the mirror up to who we are and what we are then there's not really a point in what we do um so Elizabeth Warren is a politician that spent a lot of time on MSNBC with some notable exceptions. I'd never interviewed her before on my show. And MSNBC, Rashida made a commitment to sort of marking the one-year anniversary with a special on the network on Lives Well Live, which, you yeah. know, I can barely get through, you know, to two-minute tribute. And she, she thought we should do an hour, which was bold and a beautiful commitment to all the people who've, who've lost their lives, but I could have listened to Elizabeth Warren for 12 hours, remember her brother. And that was all she did. She was just remembering him. She's telling stories. And if you think of sacrifice, I mean, these people have all been sacrificed for what is largely a failed government response to disease. And when you think of the light at the end of the tunnel, think about how this started. This started from parts unknown. You know, Governor Cuomo thinks that what happened in New York was a European variant, obviously Some of the strains came from Wuhan. I mean, we aren't anywhere near the end of the tunnel till the whole world has access to vaccines because we're one person from a plane away from the whole thing starting over again. So I think it's important and appropriate to talk about a light at the end of the tunnel, but the real light at the end of the tunnel is when there's global access to that incredible scientific discovery of a vaccine.
0: You know, the last time you were on the program, we talked about the situation with COVID back in October, right? We talked about Fauci saying, you know, the choice is sanity, and you talked admiringly, as a lot of us did, about Andrew Cuomo's leadership of New York. Are now home state through COVID, and I want to ask you a subtle question about this: Uh, How do you feel like what we now know, or now has been alleged, will be a combination of what we know and what has been credibly alleged? How does it make you think about? the way we all talked about Cuomo. I I praised him to the skies, right? And we all did that. And we had good reason to do it at the time. And now we have new information. You know, what do we make of Cuomo's leadership during COVID and of the way in which we all praised him in this over-the-top way during it? How do you feel about that? How do you process that now?
1: So it's always humbling to be sort of embarrassed by new information, right? I have the distinct humiliation of having had him on my show the day before the nursing home story broke. And we were live in a Biden event. He was on before and after.
0: Oh, dear God. And he
1: said this line, like, we now know incompetence kills. He said that on my hair the day before the nursing home story broke, that they had misappropriated deaths from nursing homes and and hospitals. I think the constant story of, you know, journalists being reminded that humility and restraint is the most... uh, admirable virtue is is always useful, and and I certainly was reminded of that. I think the story of audacity is another one that repeats itself, you know, sort of the audacity of, of Cuomo being so sort of flamboyant in his proclamations when he had some vulnerabilities in his own sort of COVID response, particularly as it pertained to nursing home deaths. I'm always flummoxed by how to find that right balance between any accuser on the sexual Misconduct front always getting sort of priority and and benefit of the doubt, and also giving any human being their right to due process. So, I think this story is complicated and challenging. But I think the Cuomo story right now is one of um, that you have to be super careful about. I think that the state is still grappling with COVID. The state is still in the urgent phase of of needing to vaccinate everybody. I think making everyone over 30 eligible is, is important and good. But I think the Cuomo story brought everything down to earth, not just for him, but for people like us who had praised him mightily.
0: You know, it's funny. Um, our colleague, Lawrence O'Donnell, and I, Lawrence, very close to Pat Moynihan. I was pretty close to Pat and learned an insane amount from him reporting about him. And we both had been talking about Andrew prior to all this, about how Andrew had been key in getting Moynihan's station open. And the key to that was the same as what we praised him for. It wasn't like when we praised Andrew last year, it wasn't like we didn't think he was an asshole. We always thought he was an asshole. <laughs> you Everybody always
1: made, made that point. You and, always, and literally always made that point.
0: We'd say, you know, he's an asshole. But sometimes there are situations where assholicness is an asset, right? And, and one of those things was, in we thought, in managing COVID, another of which was getting Monan's station done. You couldn't have gotten it done against all of the inertia and all the obstacles. You couldn't have gotten that station built without kind of an assholic, bulldozer-like quality. But the reality is, you know, the, the assholic qualities are helpful, maybe even necessary, but it doesn't make him any less assholic. And Andrew was in the middle of this pandemic; he was high as fuck on all the praise and adulation, and, mm. and and becoming a national figure. And if you think about all of the, you know, people were most willing at that point to tolerate his autocratic, control freak tendencies because they seem to be producing positive results in a crisis. The notion that that would have gone to Andrew's head. And in that moment, when it went to his head and when he was isolated and lonely, that that would have induced bad behavior. I have to say, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say I would have predicted it, that all this would happen. But it seems to me, knowing something about politicians and their vanity and their ego and hubris and knowing Andrew and having covered him for a long time. There's some element about this that is not like, in retrospect, shocking. You know, it's sort of like, oh, okay, this is what was happening up in Albany while all of this was unfolding. I mean, it's a pit in your stomach, but it's like, okay, yeah, I can see this, you know?
1: Yeah, look, and, and I mean, if I were to write a book and you're doing one and it's harder than it sounds, so I won't even joke about it, but it would be shocking, not shocking. I mean, Matt Gates falls in that category too, shocking, not shocking. Right. It, it's a pattern now. Um, that said, they're alleged victims and they deserve to sort of have their stories of course, told. And, of course, and there's of a, course. A, a, a politician with family of his own that deserves due process. We're almost like not structurally set up as a media to cover these stories with all their nuances. And the whole thing is dark and sad. Another dark and sad chapter for New York.
0: So that is the end of part one of our special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with Nicole Wallace. As you heard at the end here, Nicole just mentioned Matt Gates, which is a perfect transition to where we are headed in part two. Not just a discussion of the deliciously seedy Gates imbroglio. Though boy, oh boy, do we cover that but a broader discussion of how utterly fucked the Republican Party is and whether it can or even should be saved and much, much more. So feel free now to take a bathroom break, grab a beer or do a bong hit and then run. Don't walk back to hell and high water for part two of our epic conversation with my pal Nicole Wallace.